Literature makes you feel, and it can get you thinking too. But how do you move from signs on a page to thoughts and feelings? And why does fiction sometimes feel more real than the world around us? My name is Karin Kukkonen, and together with my colleagues from the Literature Cognition and Emotions Project, LCE for short, we will discuss these and other questions in the coming weeks. Today's guest is Halvo Eifring. Uh, he is a professor in Chinese, and our topic is literature, meditation, mind-wandering, attention, and all things in between. Welcome to the podcast, Halvo. Thank you. You have published a book last year, which is called The Power of the Wandering Mind. Yes. Um, could you say a little bit more about what the wandering mind is and, and where its power lies? Mm, yes. The wandering mind, I think we all know it because it's uh, there for us every single day of our lives. It's the thoughts that come and go spontaneously, the feelings that come and go spontaneously, and all the images that also run through our heads. Sometimes when we would like to think of something else, at other times just when we relax and this happens to us while we are walking outside, while we are meditating, while we are doing dishes or whatever. So it's anything that spontaneously runs through our minds. And power of it, I think, lies in the fact that it has, uh, well, many different functions. It's, it makes us really relax. It also makes us perhaps work through things that otherwise would have got stuck in our heads. Uh, if, you're, if you've had a quarrel with somebody, you're very likely to... Uh, think of that quarrel afterwards spontaneously and gradually what is sort of, sort of the grip that quarrel had on you will loosen up and and you will relax more again and so in this book what we do is to uh, see how this part of our human mind also helps meditation because very many people think that when you meditate you should empty your mind of mm. all sorts of thoughts and that's not the case in this form of meditation at least the non-directive meditation the uh, wandering mind is an integral part of the technique mm. so the idea is to let the mind uh, go for a walk to let the mind go for a walk so to speak yes and yeah. uh, in order to do that you also need to do something Uh, in a way, actively. It's not as if if you just open up, the mind will go for a walk by itself. It will Then it will begin to hesitate. It will begin to stop and it will avoid some uh, paths and, and go into other paths unless you are able to also give it some extra stimulus, this kind of mm. wandering mind or mind wandering. So you see meditation, since you, you mentioned it, as a way of guiding Um, Not the mind guiding in the sense of uh, guiding the content. The content needs to be absolutely free, mm. but guiding in the sense, or um, rather stimulating in the sense that it sets this part of the human mind free uh, so that it is able to unfold on its own without you interfering mm. with it. That's more or less the point. So it's yeah, letting the mind off the leash, so yes, to speak. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You're interested in meditation and mind-wandering, yes. and you're also a professor of Chinese, so yeah. I wanted to ask about the links between that. Is is this something that's especially relevant for the Chinese context? Uh, I don't think it's especially relevant for the Chinese context, but there are things in the Chinese context that are relevant for this, and there are things in Western contexts that are also equally relevant. So I think uh, in the Chinese case, One thing that uh, is of interest to this part of the mind is that in the, say, the classical Chinese uh, era, 
when all the sort of Confucius and all the philosophers came up uh, more or less at the same time as they did uh, in Greece and in uh, in India, um, then they were not particularly concerned with thoughts that came and went, but they were very much concerned with uh, feelings, emotions, mm. uh, which also sort of come and go spontaneously. And uh, uh, at least at the outset, they were quite positive to this part of the human mind uh, because it was seen as sort of a part of human nature. And human nature was something very basic that we needed to develop, to, that we needed to give a place in our lives until one philosoph particular philosopher came in and said that human nature is evil. But and that who was, was that? Uh, it was a guy called Xunzi uh, or Master Xun who uh, argued against another uh, philosopher, Mengzi, Mencius, who uh, had said the opposite, that human nature is good. And there were, this human nature issue was something very central to Chinese philosophy at the time. So, uh, but in general, human nature was seen as something very basic, something to be strived after, and emotions and all these spontaneous uh, things were part of what then uh, needed to be given leeway. And it seems to be that, I mean, these discussions that you describe between, you know, nature and spontaneous thoughts and feelings that come and go as being something good for us or, or something not good, depending on your position. I mean, that discussion is in a way still going on, isn't it, around mind-wandering? I um, think it is absolutely still going on, uh, also in relation to mind-wandering, both during meditation and outside meditation and during the reading of literature and outside the reading of literature, as you know. And of course, it is because there is some kind of ambiguity here that uh, in a way, this part of the human mind may disturb you. If you want to concentrate on something, lock uh, all other things outside of your mind, it may come in and uh, you may think of uh, things that uh, it's not that uh, I would like to think about now. I have to read, I have to prepare for my exam, I have to uh, whatever. Mm. So in that sense, of course, it may be disturbing. But in general, it is probably more disturbing if you go try very actively to push it away because then it will keep coming back uh, rather than if you let go of it and, and sort of uh, don't try to all the time uh, subdue it or suppress it because then it will be... There was an Indian philosopher in the, I think in the 11th century who said that you have to treat it like a sexually aroused elephant really? if you <laughs> if you if you try to control it subdue it it will become very dangerous whereas if you let it have its will then it will become uh, sort of meek and mellow and and, and no problem at all so uh, it's a very special quite a special uh, analogy but still yeah so you need The to let the elephant off the leash yes, in, in order sense. to develop this this picture yeah. um, that we have going. Mm. I'm also thinking about, I mean, your book engages also with the um, yeah the psychological and the cognitive yes. um, research behind that. And, and of course, that's where the, these debates are going on too. There's a Very sort of much. landmark article 
with the title of Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. Yeah. Um, but that's been, that position has been shifted, hasn't it? It has absolutely been shifted. And much of the research behind that particular article has also been refuted. So, uh, of course, there may be unhappy thoughts in your mind when you are uh, when you let it uh, go freely, but uh, there is no indication that you are any more unhappy when the mind uh, passes free or, or has the, have, has these thoughts than when you are concentrated. Uh, though there may be, it may be that when you are unhappy, there will be a tendency tendency for you to let your mind wander in order to make up for these unhappy thoughts mm. through fantasies or whatever. That's and that's maybe. not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing at all. Yeah. And uh, that's like reading a novel. <laughs> so. I, I was about to go there, yeah. I mean, in your book, you talk about this non-directive meditation as a yes. way of letting the wandering mind sort of unfold its potential. Yes. But it seems to me that many of the things that you describe like, for example, you know, you, you get away from unhappy thoughts or thoughts that occupy you too much. Mm -hmm. uh, you do that, of course, also with reading literature. Yeah. Where you can, again, you know, you sit down, you're quiet, your mind gets away from what occupies you here and now. And it, I think it's also a productive process. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about how this non-directive meditation might compare to something like literary reading? I think there are many parallels. I think when you read, uh, at least if you read a good book, <laughs> you tend to be absorbed and sort of drawn into the novel or whatever it is uh, spontaneously. Not because you sort of concentrate actively on it, but because you are drawn into it. There's something in it that makes you absorbed. And I think in the meditation, it's some, there's something similar. Uh, in the case of meditation, there is no particular content that you are to focus on. The thoughts that come are the thoughts that come, whatever they are. But this process also somehow, when you relax in meditation, you also sort of tends to become more absorbed in where, wherever you are. And so this absorption is one thing. Another thing is, I think, the activation of all these spontaneous thoughts and what uh, the neuroscientists call the default mode network of the brain, the part of the parts of the brain, the network in the brain that uh, tends to be activated when we relax, when we don't have anything else particular to do. Uh, I think also, if I'm not mistaken, uh, at least some types of literature also activate that part. Also, meditation, uh, at least non-directive meditation, very much activates that part. And communication, good communication between human beings also activates uh, that part. So uh, this is an area of the brain that's very important for us that may be seen as what, it, the, what the name indicates, so the sort of default way of functioning. That's whatever we do uh, sort of on purpose comes on top of that. And therefore... So the default is like a default setting in the machine that yes. if you don't change it, then that's what it'll do. Exactly. And uh, I think for literature to sort of catch our minds, it needs to tap into that part of the mind, uh, whether it's through feelings or thoughts or uh, images or whatever. Or all of that. All of that, yeah. all of the above. So, uh, and uh, that's exactly what makes us so absorbed 
in literature. And I think also in meditation, in good communication, we have the same thing that it activates uh, these sort of more basic things inside us. And the deeper you go, the more that activates a sort of deeper, if you like, direction in your life. So it's not as if this is entirely directionless, but the direction comes basically from within. Although, of course, when you read literature, it's stimulated from the outside, but at the same time, it activates whatever is in you. Yeah, so, because, I mean, readers do have quite different responses. Yeah, exactly. To the very same book. Yes. So there must be something deeper, yeah. as you put it. No, I think also that's uh, one of the reasons why uh, some books, novels or whatever, feel a little constructed. Mm -hmm. They don't tap into this part as easily as other things. They are, the author has thought too much beforehand and wants to construct something that he or she thinks is uh, good literature, but which fails to sort of tap into that part of the mind. So, so explicit um, rules and guidelines are actually not a way of, no. of getting at that. No, absolutely not. I think good authors have, of course, they may have uh, external guidelines as well, but they don't let those guidelines sort of uh, rule out the movements of the mind uh, or the spontaneous movements of the mind. They need to sort of follow some kind of spontaneity. And that's, I guess, also one of the reasons why so many authors say that they don't know what their work is about. They mm. don't know when they start what it is going to be about. They have to follow some kind of inner, uh, I don't know, Non-directive writing. <laughs> yes, non-directive <laughs> writing. Although they spend a lot of time sort of working on the sentences in order for them to uh, accord with that kind of inner impulse. So it's not as if it's just sort of writing out your inner thoughts mm. there and then but in literature. Uh, but it needs to sort of tap into that part and to somehow accord with that part of the mind. And that also, I assume, takes time in the writing process itself. It's yes. Like with meditation, from what I understand, this is not something that you learn in a day course. Yeah, no, you learn it in a course that takes several days. But uh, uh, also, I think uh, there, but in both cases, there is a long-term process, and in a sense, a process that never ends, where you get at more of your what is in your mind as you go along. One Chinese poet, Wang Wei, who uh, wrote, in a way, in a sense, very natural poetry poetry that was both close to external nature and that was supposed to be sort of close to our internal mind. He is also known to have spent quite a lot of time on every single sen sentence so that a four-line poem had to be exactly what he wanted it to be before he could let go of it. But he, he didn't construct it in a thought-oriented way. He sort of felt when it accorded with some of these natural directions of his mind. And I guess that's something many authors um, talk about as well, that there is this moment when you sort of know yeah. that yes. this is it. Yes. Or this is as good as it's going to get now. Yes. In, um, when you write literature, there is another thing that 
if I mean, I suppose some writers, especially nowadays, write about themselves explicitly, and that's one genre. But I also know there are many writers who, while they are being extremely personal in what they write about, they never mention themselves. They never use their own names. They always go through other persons and sort of. Uh, project, if you like, their own feelings, their own reactions into those other persons, and there may not be one particular person mm. in that novel that is uh, sort of represents the author, but the author's inner conflicts, if you like, may be represented in some of the structure of the whole novel. Or multiple so, characters having yes, yeah, struggling with each other. Yes, yeah. and I think that is, uh, in a way, very similar to what uh, you may say happens in a more sort of psychodynamically oriented uh, therapy session where uh, where sort of the free associations may on on the surface be very far removed from the actual life of the patient in that case but they may have a sort of basic structure that reflects some of what is uh, the deeper issues at stake for the patient. So this structural thing is also quite important that you see again and again that the content, this also applies to meditation, the content is a fairly superficial thing. Many of the deeper issues come or are exposed through the structure of how different types of impulses stand up against each other, how they develop in in relation to each other. Uh, whereas, and that may happen in your meditation, mm. even if it's everyday thoughts about what happened at the office today. And uh, the same, I think, goes for the, the therapy session, I'm sure, and uh, for much of the novel also, that some of the uh, deeper issues come out much in the underlying structures of the novel, just as much as through the actual interaction between the mm, characters in the novel. Yeah. Mm. And of course, this structure is something that, I mean, as you read, and if you, we're talking about a long novel, maybe yes. a, a long Chinese novel. Um, I can mention one if you like in a moment. Yeah. <laughs> so. as, as you do that, of course... Uh, I mean, you, you won't be able to read that in one sitting, no, so you course. have to come back to it. Yes. And I guess also what happens in between uh, your reading sessions. That, yes. So it's it's not just while you read that the mind does things spontaneously and you have, I don't know, certain associations, mm. particular characters, but also in between yes. uh, reading. Yes. And the degree to which you identify mm. with the characters or or see that character as being your mother or your father or whatever, all of this sort of sets a process going that may go on for days, weeks, months, years, So, uh, which is interesting. I, I mentioned a very long Chinese novel. Many Chinese novels from the what we call the late imperial era are extremely long. And this one... Uh, which I have devoted some time to is uh, the best English translation of it is called The Story of the Stone. And you have to read the best English translation by David Hawkes because uh, it's so much better than uh, some of the other translations. Uh, it's a piece of art in itself. And I don't think you would read it in one sitting. It is. How many pages? 
It's published in five volumes, and each okay. volume is about 525 pages. So uh, I think you would spend a little time on it. <laughs> Summer holidays. <laughs> yes. And the author, Cao Xueqin, was a person who was born into one of the richest and uh, most powerful families in China. But when he was probably 13 years old, they lost absolutely everything. The things they had were confiscated by the imperial throne. And then uh, the translator, David Hawkes, was professor of Chinese at the uh, Oxford University. But he gave up that position and went to till the earth instead in order to have time to translate this novel. So <laughs> in a way, both are a little or are quite special human beings. And at least in the latter case, where since I knew him, David Hawkes was a very nice person as well. So, and an extremely good translator in the sense that he gets all the meaning mm. of the words, and at the same time is able to recreate this as literature in its own right in English. So this would be a reading recommendation. This is definitely a reading recommendation. The story of the stone. Story Penguin. of the stone. <laughs> It seems to me, I mean, from the way in which you talk about meditation and mind-wandering, but also literary reading, that this is something that's very difficult to get at with traditional uh, psychology methods, the, the kind of studies that conclude that a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. Um, they don't look at <laughs> phenomena like that. They don't look at phenomena like that, but you can say that in the 1890s, you had on the one hand in uh, America... Uh, the stream of consciousness, and uh, which came up, uh, or stream of thought, as a, an important concept, tried to look more realistically at what is actually happening in our minds. And at the same time, in Europe, you had uh, Freud with the free association, which was used as a kind of uh, therapeutic method, but also a scientific method for investigating what goes on in the mind. So in that period, in fact, you had this as a quite central issue in at least parts of the psychological uh, milieu. Uh, then, uh, I guess, during the 20th century, it maybe left the center of attention and, uh, and came back again with the discovery of this default mode network in, the, in around 2000. So uh, I think now, after that kind of discovery and the discovery a few years later that what happens in the default mode network is so tightly knit to all the thoughts that come and go in our minds. I think that makes it a much more interesting subject for research and uh, scholarly attention mm. these days. And I guess something else that's going on today is this feeling that we're not in control of our attention anymore. So yeah. <laughs> the whole yes. debate around social media and digitization. Yes, and that is interesting too because... In one sense, some people seem to uh, say that the mind-wandering is what is happening when we are all the way in our uh, telephones or whatever all the time. But that's exactly the opposite in a way. It's some, Because then it's something external that draws our attention away from ourselves, which is the opposite of what, what's happening when we either meditate or take a, or read a good novel or do other things that stimulate the sort of internal process of uh, spontaneous mind wandering. 
So I think in that sense, the um, what they call the weapons of mass distraction, distraction. The <laughs> iPhones or whatever, mm. uh, are something that works in the opposite direction. Mm. Of what we are talking about here, it seems to me from the way in which you describe it, it's it's a very short leash. Yes, <laughs> if if it is mind wandering, it's mind wandering on on a very short yes uh, leash. Yes, so it's it's certainly much better to read the story of the stone. <laughs> or That's to, a very long leash. Yes. <laughs> or to meditate, indeed. Yes. Thank you so much for this excellent conversation on mind wandering meditation and literary reading. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening uh, to the LCE podcast. Our next episode will air in about two weeks. Until then. <laughs>